Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. My name is Sean Delaney and I'm a primary teacher and teacher educator. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, will shortly be available as an audiobook on all platforms. Over 400 previous episodes of Inside Education are available for download from seandelaney.com when you click on the podcasts tab. You can email me with feedback or suggestions to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter where I use the handle at InsideEd. My guest on the podcast this week is a colleague in the Marino Institute of Education who is an expert on the teaching of reading. Dr Jennifer O'Sullivan qualified as a teacher in 2003 and last year was awarded a PhD from Trinity College where her area of research was phonemic awareness and early reading development. Along with some colleagues, Jennifer was awarded an Enterprise Ireland grant to investigate the feasibility of a phonological awareness screening and monitoring app based on her doctoral research. You'll like this week's podcast if you're interested in the teaching of reading to young learners. If you want clear explanations of phonemic awareness and phonological awareness. And if you're interested in finding out more about how picture books can be used in the classroom. You will also hear recommendations for books and resources related to the teaching of reading. When I met up with Jennifer O'Sullivan, I first asked her to tell me about her career path into teaching. I suppose my career trajectory into teaching was a little bit unusual. You know, everyone around me, my parents told me I'd be a great teacher. So as a teenager often does, they like to rebel against all of that. So I started off in a computer course in DCU. Uh, which after a year very much decided, no, this is definitely not for me and uh, dropped out of that particular course, much to the dismay of my my parents. And at the time, the CAO points had been out and I'd kind of missed the boat there. So it was uh, up to the workplace for me and I started in Erlingus and I worked there as a, a cabin crew member for eight years uh, and while I was there, I completed my undergrad degree in psychology and English literature. Uh, and at that point, then, I suppose I was starting to give in to this idea that, OK, maybe teaching is for me and it is something I should maybe have a look at and pursue. And again, just the timing was it was perfect for me at the time. Our linguists were looking for you know redundancies and uh, I left there and did the, the graduate diploma in St. Pat's or what is now DCU and went into teaching then after that. So a bit of a circuitous route uh, into teaching, but I suppose it gave me a really good, you know, I really see the value of the likes of the PME currently, you know, and and the fact that it attracts people into teaching who, you know, have maybe a, a, a rich tapestry of sort of life experiences behind them that maybe, you know, we don't have maybe with our, our undergrad um, students. So it's lovely to have that PME where you do have that opportunity where, you know, when you decide to be a rebellious teenager, that the options are, are still very much, I suppose, open to you later on in life. So so that was how I got into teaching and began teaching then in a Desh Band 1 school and spent uh, my time working in that school. It was a, a junior school 
and was just an amazing, absolutely amazing experience. You know, I wonder, the, could you tell us, Jenna, a little bit about the parts of that work that you enjoyed and the parts mm-hmm. that you found challenging, given that you had spent eight years working in the private sector, really? Yeah, I mean, it was a, a, a very big jump from working in a, a big company such as Erlingus, then suddenly you find yourself in, in a classroom, you know, with all these little sort of children who are looking to you to to lead them in in some aspect you know and I suppose one of the joys for me was especially in a junior school you very very clearly saw your impact or your effect as a teacher you know if you've junior infants and they come in and they're not reading and by the end of that year they're reading you can really see and, and you get a lot of joy out of that seeing the impact that maybe you wouldn't further up in the school maybe you know with the more senior classes so that was always a joy the uh the challenges then were probably the same challenges you'll get from from any teachers from you know class sizes to time in the day to get everything done was always a challenge one of the other joys I think of working in a desk school was was trying to bring parents along with you I think, and, you know, you have parents who didn't want anything to do with school, you know, never liked school, and to be able to maybe start bringing them into the classroom to get involved in maybe maths games or shared reading with the children. So they were aspects of of my career that I always remember with a degree of joy and happiness. You decided then, after you were teaching for a while, to do a master's in literacy. Why did Mm. you decide to, to do the master's and why in literacy? Yeah, I suppose I was just at a stage, uh, had the degree done, the postgraduate, I seem to be one of these sort of junkies where I just need to learn more. So at the time was, again, I was at that point where I wanted to, you know, push myself a little bit more, probably professionally. And literacy was an area I was particularly interested in, especially working in a, in a DESH school. You could very clearly see the impact of, of maybe children's background on their reading development and reading levels. And I suppose the longer you're at teaching, the more demoralized you can sometimes become with results from standardized tests. And, you know, the the National Assessment of English Reading is constantly showing this disparity between the reading levels of children attending DESH schools versus non-DESH schools. So I suppose a lot of that's burned me into, you know, wanting to know more about literacy, wanting to learn more, to, to be able to bring back to the classroom and look at why you know, some of these issues may be issues for, for children from these sort of disadvantaged backgrounds. So they were particularly the the the, the reasons why I went on to, to complete the master's in, in literacy. You also worked with the National Induction Programme for Teachers. And from your experience of that, what do primary teachers find most challenging in their first year of teaching, do you think? Well, that was such a, a, a wonderful experience working with the NIPT. Uh, and I suppose it gave me a really good insight for the students I'm teaching today because you kind of see where they're where they're going. And, and that first year, you know, you really get a good idea of the challenges that, that face them. And like I know, I'm sure you were the same yourself, Shauna, and myself, that those supports weren't there for us. You know, it was very much a sink or swim when you got out there where the support that newly qualified teachers have now is just absolutely phenomenal. But from working with those teachers, I suppose you would see things like behavior management were huge challenges, classroom management, they always, you know, worried about. And But I think a lot of confidence issues really undermine a lot of those issues that they have. They just, 
you know, sometimes the teachers just want to be told you're doing a good job, you know, that, you, yeah, you may have a slightly challenging class, but you're doing really well with them. And sometimes they just want that little bit of affirmation to, yeah, I'm doing the best I can. Um, and and sometimes, you know, their mentor is is fantastic and the, that they have somebody now that they can go to and go, you know, is it just me? Or, you know, they might find out, well, last year's teachers, they found this particular class challenging as well. So you're doing a good job and you're doing the best you can do. And, and it's a it, this is a learning journey for you. And, you know, to ensure that you're constantly learning on that journey is really important. But I think the biggest challenge is confidence, you know, just and just know that they're doing a good job in the circumstances that they're in, whatever they might be. You started working in Merino, but then you also did your PhD in early reading development in Trinity. And I mean, I suppose one of the questions is, are there still things that we don't fully understand about early reading development? I mean, you think, you know, that with all the research that's been done on reading, you think we would know all the questions have been answered at this stage. And at the moment, I mean, we're in such an interesting space in literacy and reading research with this whole, uh, I suppose, revolution of the science of reading has now shown us and told us so much more. We know so much now about reading that we didn't know maybe 30 or 40 years ago. And as you said, it's such a well-researched area that we do know an awful lot. But it's such a complex process, particularly early reading development, that there is still a lot still to learn. So, I mean, an area that I think would be very interesting to really look into is, you know, we know now that there's probably 5% of children who learn to read and write despite us even being in the classroom. And it would be so interesting to, to tap into that particular group in particular to see, well, what what's because we know so much about the reading brain now. And we have all these studies from the science of reading and cognitive psychologists who are, are studying the brain and what happens to the brain when children learn to read. So I think that little group would be really interesting to, to really look at how are these children learning despite, despite, you know, that really explicit instruction, because we do now know an awful lot of children at the other end of the spectrum. You know, we have a very good idea of why some children struggle to learn to read, but it's that really top group that I think would be really interesting. But we know so much more than, than we did, you know, a couple of decades ago. But due to the complexity of, of the whole process, there, there is still still more to learn. But this whole area and this whole you know, looking into the brain and MRIs of the brain and the science of reading is really shedding an awful lot of light for us in um, in the area of literacy and how children acquire these basic reading skills and equally how some children don't and why some children don't and what they're coming to school with already. The, the whole area of emergent literacy, you know, we're no longer thinking that children don't learn to read and write until they come to school. We know from birth, children are on a trajectory and they're developing in terms of their literacy. So we really have a really solid bank of research behind us now. What we no longer need to do is theorize about reading. So we don't need to sort of guess what might work so much anymore. So, you know, back when we have the whole reading wars going on, we theorized about the idea that, children learn to read the same way they learn to speak. We now, we now know from the science of reading that we don't, we're not naturally wired to learn to read, we are to learn to speak. So a lot of these insights are, are you know, very much backed up by research now. So we don't have to theorize as much about what might work 
uh, we have a much stronger idea now of what does work in relation to, to reading. But as ever, there is there's plenty more still to learn and still to come, hopefully. And, and to what extent is the pathway or the route to learning to read, is it an individual process or is there an ideal route or pathway that everybody should progress through and that that is optimal? Yeah, and that's a really, really interesting question because again, what what we're beginning to realize is there actually is one route to learning to read. And regardless of whether you're a struggling reader or not a struggling reader, we all learn to read the same way. And what's happened in the past is we've looked at teaching reading lots of different ways, but now we know there is actually one trajectory and where some children might need more intensive support, may need more uh, time uh, at certain aspects of reading. In actual fact, we all learn to read the same way. We, we all need to develop an alphabetic principle. We need to be able to apply the sounds of our language to the print on the page. Uh, and what has been used like along with the science of reading is this simple view of reading. And although it sounds simple, it's trying to, I suppose, graphically represent a very complex process. So we all need to be able to decode what we see on the page and we need to have an understanding of what those words mean in order to comprehend what we read. So we all learn to read the same way. It's just some children along that route, particularly at the early stages, will need a lot more intensive, explicit and systematic instruction to get them to that point. So for a teacher and for a teacher educator, I suppose that's that's nice to know, you know, that there is one way that we learn to read and we don't have to, you know, look at, well, you know, dyslexic children, they may be coming at this from a different perspective. In actual fact, what they're trying to do is they, they again, these MRI studies have shown that they're actually activating the right-hand side of their brain when in actual fact they should be accessing the left-hand side of their brain. And what we need to do is literally reprogram the brain to, you know, be focusing on the phonology and the sounds of the language and giving those children a lot more intensive, explicit instruction in that particular area of language. So that's where we're at uh, at the moment. And, and if there is one, in, one um, you know, fairly predictable trajectory or fairly predictable pathway to learning to read, how then does a teacher decide where a student is on that pathway and, you know, help them with what they most need to work on in order to develop as a reader? What teachers need is a lot of content knowledge in this particular area. And unfortunately, a lot of studies internationally have shown that this is an area that teachers could definitely do with a little bit more CPD in, in this whole idea of the linguistic and uh, language structures, how, um, you know, phonemes relate to graphemes and the alphabetic principle. Uh, and with that knowledge, then you can determine where children are at. Or even if we look at phases of word recognition development, you have to have a knowledge of that and those very basic but complex skills in order to determine where, where the child is at and what they need. Uh, like, is there issue with a decoding issue? And if it is, well, then I know I need to look at a couple of different areas uh, to try and figure out where this child is, is, is stumbling uh, or struggling. Um, but as a teacher, I have to have that content knowledge in this area in order to determine that. And I suppose... We have in Marina, we have a very exciting new, new module that we've just introduced as part of our undergraduate degree, which is uh, entitled Literacy Education, Teacher Knowledge and Competence. 
And what we're trying to do, even at that undergraduate level, is give the students the background information that they're going to need in order to be able to go out and recognize these children who are struggling and also recognize where they're struggling and what they need to do to try and get them over that that particular um, uh, barrier that they have in reading. Your own doctoral dissertation, it was in the area of phonemic awareness. I wonder, can you say a little bit about what phonemic awareness is and then tell us a little bit about the research, you know, what you were studying and how you went about doing it? What I wanted to look at was this area of of phonemic awareness in particular. Now, phonemic awareness is the ability to identify and manipulate the individual uh, sounds within your speech. So if I had a child and I said to them the word cat, how many sounds do you hear in that word? They'd be able to tell me that it has three sounds. And it's really only when children uh, begin the reading process that they start to focus on this sort of metalinguistic skill and have to really focus on the sounds within language rather than just looking at the meaning behind a word like cat. A cat is uh, an animal with whiskers and meows. Now I want them to say, well, can you tell me the first sound you hear in the word cat? So that's what phonemic awareness is. It's an incredibly complex skill, but it's a foundation for later reading development. And I suppose why I got into this particular area, well, there were a few things that sort of coincided. First of all, as part of the the master's in literacy, I looked into this area of phonological awareness and I was hearing things like it's a predictor of later reading um, ability in children. And I was kind of thinking to myself, oh my God, I wasn't teaching this as a teacher, uh, particularly in a junior school. And my God, this seems like a really powerful area. Why do I not know more about it? And, and why am I not teaching it? So I really kind of got quite interested in this area. And at the same time, my daughter was around four years old. So she was going through this stage of that pre-reading emergent literacy stage. So uh, she, God love her, she became a complete guinea pig. And I tried out all of this and I could see, okay, I can see the benefits of this. And I started to see how this could be a foundation But the fact that it is almost like a crystal ball uh, and we can tell before children even begin reading, we can determine by measuring their phonemic awareness whether they will go on to struggle with reading. I mean, I think that is just incredibly powerful, um, not only as a teacher, but for a child have to wait now until they've begun formal reading and and they realize themselves, I'm a poor reader, I'm a bad reader, and I've had senior infants you know, say that to me, which is incredibly tragic and, and very hard to come back from with with children like that. So what I wanted to do is, as part of my, my research, uh, I wanted to look and see whether, again, coming from that DESH background, whether children from lower uh, SESC backgrounds were beginning primary school with lower levels of phonemic awareness. Uh, and again, a lot of the research or the international research would suggest that they do. So that was the first part of my study was looking at that and uh, spent a couple of weeks in September in junior infants assessing children's phonemic awareness, which was a, a very interesting time and a very busy time. And lo and behold, yes, uh, I, my research did support what the international research was saying, that these children were exhibiting lower levels of phonemic awareness. And that was worrying because if we're saying that this is the foundation for their reading you know, you wanted to make sure that they had that that strong foundation there. So what I said about doing then in the second part of the study was introducing a, a teacher-led explicit phonological awareness intervention that focused at that phoneme level, focused at phonal, uh, phonemic awareness. 
And that was important in itself because with phonological awareness, there is a tendency to, you know, focus on clapping syllables, doing some rhyme with children, but it's really the phonemic awareness piece that has uh, the future impact on reading and spelling. So as a teacher, sometimes you might be spending lots of time on syllables and things, and I did this, but I didn't really get them to that phonemic awareness piece. And that's where we should be focusing all of our attention is on that particular skill. So we implemented, or the teachers involved, so it was teacher-led, uh, they got involved and they spent, I think it was 14 weeks on the intervention program. And at the end of that, again, I assessed the children's phonemic awareness. And there were some, in, in some of the skills, there were uh, statistically significant differences between those who got the intervention and those who didn't in the DESH school. So that's what I, I, I spent four years on. And, um, and it, it was really the fact, I, I'm, I'm a very pragmatic person and I wanted my research to be very pragmatic. So I didn't want to go in as a researcher and, you know, deliver this intervention program. I wanted to make sure that it was something that could carry on after I left. And, and in fact, it has. And the school itself, very much the, the whole school community sort of embraced this, I think, particularly as a junior school. Um, and the resource teachers started to use it. The special educational team started using it. And they started using it further up the school. So, you know, looking at first class children who were struggling with reading, they brought them back to that sort of, you know, do they have the foundational skills there in place to begin reading, first of all? Or have we introduced phonics way too early when they weren't really ready for it because they couldn't even hear the sounds within their own language, never mind put letters on top of those sounds as well? So, so that's what, uh, what the, the research basically um, involved. And if you were to say, you know, that there were one or two lessons that a teacher could definitely take from your research and apply in their own teaching in the morning or, you know, in the next mm -hmm. month, what, 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 what kind of lessons would you, would you take that teachers should definitely know about based on what you discovered? I suppose the need to provide uh, more systematic and explicit instruction in this area prior to introducing phonics. There is the danger in junior infants that, you know, week two, week three in September, we're holding up the letter S and telling children, this is the letter S and it makes this sound. In actual fact, that letter doesn't make any sound at all. It's the sound that comes from the children's speech. And I suppose there's a little bit of um, topsy-turviness here. What, we're what we are doing in the classroom is we're trying to associate uh, print with speech and in actual fact we've got it the wrong way around we should be starting with speech that's what children come to school with we can be almost assured that every child sitting in front of us has uh, oral language can talk and can listen to the sounds of their own speech and then we're telling them you know that sound that you have in your speech well this is the letter that represents that sound so it's not a case of having to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're, we're doing this, but we're just maybe doing it the wrong way around. And we need to be putting much more emphasis at the start of junior infants on, on developing that phonemic awareness because it's a very, very difficult skill. And I, I try this out even with the, the student teachers. You know, I ask the, the student teachers, how many phonemes do particular words have? And they struggle, um, you know, to, to tell me how many. It's a very complex, difficult skill because... In a word, we don't hear the individual phonemes. They're, they're what we call co-articulated. So they all run into each other. So we do need to explicitly teach children how to pull 
these uh, sounds apart in words and also how to blend them back together. And they are the, the, the fundamental skills of, of learning to sound out and learning to spell. So very much like, you know, if you put SH together, you get a sh sound. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, exactly. So, and this is, I suppose, this new module we have, this idea of learning about digraphs and realizing that if you see, you hear an SH, it's a sh sound. Um, so that's the kind of content knowledge that teachers need. And it's, it's quite difficult for us as adults because we're nearly at a disadvantage because we can spell. And I always have to try and get them to imagine you're a junior infant and you know absolutely nothing about spelling because the spelling doesn't necessarily relate to the number of sounds or phonemes in, in a word. So if you look at the, the spelling of the number eight and I asked you how many sounds it has, it only has two, even though it has five letters. And this is a very challenging and complex skill that children won't just pick up just by being in the class. They need to be taught how to do it and, and how to do it to a fairly proficient level. And, and what's nice about it is when children can show you that they can blend and segment the sounds of language, that's almost them telling you, now I'm ready for you to show me letters. <laughs> now I'm ready for you to map letters onto those sounds for me. Uh, and in the school where I, I conducted the, the study for my uh, PhD, what they found is they could introduce phonics a, a lot more quickly because children understood what they were being asked to do, first of all. And, and they understood that the, the letter related to the sound that was already within their, their language. And by not doing that, I suppose we need to look at, you know, if I'm a struggling reader or I'm going to be a struggling reader or an at-risk reader, and week two in September, you're showing me all these letters and you're telling me they make a sound. That almost becomes a memorization task for those children. So now I have to memorize 26 letters, these funny squiggles that I've maybe never seen before. I have to know what sound is associated with each one. So it's really no wonder that I have trouble sounding out letters or sounding out words when it comes to, to decoding. So it's a little bit like pre-writing. You know, we don't just come into junior infants, give the children and start getting them to form letters. We spend lots of time developing their fine motor skills. And, and this is a similar, this is like a little pre-reading activity that, that children need before we map on our letters to those sounds for them. You have been awarded a grant from Enterprise Ireland to investigate the feasibility of an app to monitor and to screen phonological awareness in children. What, what's involved in this? What's the idea of it? This was part of my PhD as well. So uh, part of the problem with phonological awareness and phonemic awareness is trying to assess it as a classroom teacher. Sorry, what's the difference in phonological awareness and phonemic ah, awareness? Okay, and this is part of the problem with this whole area. No wonder teachers are confused between phonemes, phonics, phonological awareness. Phonological awareness is, is a much broader term. So it uh, involves attending to and thinking about and manipulating broader aspects of spoken language. So syllabification, onset and rhyme, would all, and, and phonemic awareness is part of that broader class. So, uh, so that's the difference. So if you think of the phonological awareness as, as sort of the big broader sounds and phonemic awareness is that individual sound. But it is an umbrella term that, that incorporates phonemic awareness. So you can see why <laughs> people are confused with this area. 
one of the problems is that as a teacher, and we know now that it's going, it's really becoming more and more important to screen and monitor children's phonological and phonemic awareness. But if I have 30 junior infants in my class, how am I going to, I, I'm going to have to withdraw each child because I need to get them to a space where it's quiet, that so they can hear the sounds that I'm making so they can respond to them. It could take up to 20 minutes to implement this paper and pencil test. So as part of the doctorate, I kind of looked at this as an issue and thought, well, is there any way around it? So I developed an an iPad-based phonological awareness assessment. So I was able to withdraw the children in groups of eight. And they literally sat down with the iPad and they put on their little earphones and they self-administered the assessment themselves. Uh, So that took a while to develop. And my poor long-suffering brother, who turns out was a software engineer, um, (laughs) I took up a a fairly large chunk of his life for a few years while he developed this with me. But it was always a prototype and it was something that I used. But while I was using, I was starting to see, God, this could have a big impact on on classroom teachers if they had this tool and they could just, you know, administer it to the children in the class very quickly. And it's not a diagnostic tool. You know, what we want to do is just screen and monitor and look for those children very early on who who are struggling, who are, you know... You said it's not diagnostic. No, no, it's 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 more just to screen. I want to see as a teacher which children are falling through the cracks a little bit on this so I can get in there as quickly as I can. And maybe then when I spot those children, I can apply a more diagnostic test to see well, where exactly is the breakdown here. But at, at this point in junior infants, and, and really we need to be doing this two to three times during the, the year in, in junior infants, just a very quick monitor and screen to see how the children are getting on, who's improving, who's falling backwards. So my PhD supervisor, Dr. Anne Devitt, is the academic director of Learnovate in Trinity. And we were talking and thinking, mm, does this have legs? You know, would this be useful? But like anything with technology, the costs of, you know, working on something like this are absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and getting something like this to market would be just just huge. So uh, we applied uh, or applied for a grant with Enterprise Ireland, Ireland with, under the auspices of Learnovate and with Merino. And we kind of worked on the collaborative agreement where uh, we got funding now to look at the feasibility of whether people will be interested in using an app such as this. Uh, so that's where we're at at the moment. We have a consultant now who's going out and seeing, you know, is there a market for this or you know, would this be something that could, in some way, I suppose, revolutionize how phonological awareness and phonemic awareness is assessed in the class by, and what I'd love to do is incorporate some speech recognition as well. So in my initial app, it was purely receptive. The children just tapped a picture. So can you tap the picture that begins with this sound? Whereas I would love it to become a little bit more productive and incorporate children's speech recognition technology. So they're actually making the sounds as opposed to just clicking on a picture and it could be just a pure accident that they pick that particular image. Whereas if they have to produce the sounds themselves, it's a little bit uh, more of a challenging assessment. So it's absolutely wonderful, yeah, that this is is getting underway. And with any luck, if we do find that there is a market out there, then we will hopefully apply for um, a commercialization grant to actually be able to bring the actual tool to uh, some kind of fruition and actually get it developed uh, by Learnabate as well. And would you see that being used by 
say regular class teachers or by learning support teachers or is it more for education psychologists you know our parents who might mm. use it it might, might be all of them yeah exactly what i'd hope is, is as many people as possible who find it useful um the whole idea would be to try and make it classroom friendly so teachers can use it but the intervention that I developed is, is currently as well being used by some speech and language therapists as well. So they might find something like this very useful. And the whole idea is that it would, it's just screening and monitoring. And then when we have that little cohort that we're worried about, we can apply then a, a more um, comprehensive assessment or the likes of an educational psychologist. We can go, OK, I'm slightly concerned about this child. I've implemented this monitoring test a couple of times to them and they're, they're not making any progress. So yeah, I mean, I, what I would hope is it wouldn't take an awful lot of training either in order to like that it basically would run itself. It records all the responses. It, it develops a, a database for the teachers to get all their scoring from as well. So it does have the special ed teams or anybody could use it as well. It sounds like it, it, it would be a good way to stop some children falling through the cracks, which mm. is an expression we often hear about in terms of children that fail to learn to read. Yeah, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to identify those children who are at risk of future reading issues. And, and what I suppose I like to look at this as more of a preventative intervention for children. We want to get in there before they're having issues with formal reading. We can, we can get in there. And, and the really good news here is when we identify these children, we can give them that really explicit intensive instruction. And if they improve in their phonological awareness, there's a strong chance that they will improve uh, when their reading is, is introduced to them as well. So it, it's really kind of good news all around with this particular area. It, we can predict those who are you know, at risk of future reading and we can intervene and, and prevent them by implementing strong interventions at that early stage so that we're giving them the best chance possible of acquiring, you know, proficient reading levels further on up the school. And for children, say, who have dyslexia, would this be of any use to them or is that a separate condition that interferes with their learning to read? No, these are the, the, these would be the children who are one of the at-risk groups here that we would hopefully identify because we know that dyslexia, you know, for years we thought it was a, an issue relating to their vision. Uh, we had all the backwards letters and everything. But again, what we know now is it's a phonological deficit that they have. And they're, they're, where they're struggling is to hear those sounds. And, and those particular children do need... Um, their brain programmed to hear those sounds, but they're going to need an awful lot of more in extensive and intensive support in developing and hearing those sounds. So this is really one tool that, that we would hope would flag children who are at risk later on because we can't tell a junior infant, you know, a junior infant, we don't label them as dyslexic. We don't do that till they're a little bit further up the school. But what we want to do is flag that, OK, we need to keep an eye on this child. We need to give them a lot more intensive instruction in this area of phonological and phonemic awareness to, to make sure that they are hearing those sounds again before we map letters onto them for them. So they would definitely be a group that we would hope the likes of this tool would, would be able to identify at a very, very early stage. Yeah, it actually reminds me of a guest that I had on the programme before, Jerome Kagan, who talked about the that one of the risks for children is that there's a, a number of children 
he said, you know, in schools in Dublin at this moment who have undiagnosed hearing difficulties. And I mean, that's yeah. something that could be identified through how students would perform mm. using your app. Absolutely, because if, especially if they're self-administering it and it's all, you know, they have their little earphones on and it talks them through and it's quite game-based, the whole idea is, you know, you're trying to uh, motivate and engage junior infants. It all has to be very, very game-based. But so it, 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 you may turn out that it's not necessarily a phonological problem. It could be the child didn't do well on it because they have a hearing issue or, you know, or a speech and language um, impairment, uh, especially if you're looking at the productive side of things and you're getting them to make the sounds. If they're not pronouncing some of those words correctly, maybe they're it's not that they're not hearing the sound, they're just not pronouncing the word to begin with correctly. So it could be a speech and language difficulty. So I suppose what it will do is hopefully identify at-risk students. And then that gives the teacher the opportunity to look at those students a little bit more closely, monitor them a little bit more to see maybe what's going on. And is there a, a profile that they're starting to generate around a particular child rather than they're just one of 30 and look, I don't have the time to implement phonological awareness tests. I don't have, you know, two days of my junior infant week to take children out. And so I'm actually not going to do it because I just don't have the time to do it, which sadly is, is happening in, in a lot of places. And we have to remember, this is only one part of, of early literacy. <laughs> you know, I have to look at their alphabetic knowledge. I have to look at their handwriting. So, you know, to say that it's going to take you two days and you need to do that two to three times a year um, is, a, is too much of an ask, really, for teachers. So it's hoped that maybe something like this would, first of all, flag those children and make it a much more uh, time efficient method of, of screening and, and monitoring children's phonemic awareness. Jen, I'd like to move on to another area of interest for you now, and that's the whole area of children's literature and mm. you know, reading more generally. You've presented papers on close reading and visual literacy. What do you mean by the terms close reading and visual literacy? Uh, yeah, so visual literacy is like my other hat in literacy. And that, uh, that was my dissertation as part of my, my uh, MED. I looked at children's responses to visual images in text. Um, and I suppose part of that stems from my love of, of, of picture books and, you know, also recognizing that children are surrounded by images. They're being bombarded on a daily basis by images all around them. And what we really want them to start doing is, is reading, not just looking at these images or glancing at them, but actually reading them and, and being critical of them as well. So when we're looking at visual literacy, we're looking at children's ability to read visual images and you know, picture books are a wealth, well, good picture books, because like any genre, we can get good and bad picture books out there, but really good picture books. You know, uh, the illustrators are using very specific techniques. And unless you know what those techniques are, you really, it's again, like reading a decoding a text. There's a grammar around our, our, our language. There's also a grammar around visual images. So I really wanted children to, I taught them about line, color, perspective, point of view, and very clever picture book uh, authors and illustrators, very often what's happening in the picture is completely at odds with the, the printed text. So I wanted children to really focus on these. And I used wordless picture books in particular. So I took all the words away. So they really had to look at the pictures. And in terms of, I suppose, the close reading, this came in in the States a couple of years ago with the Common Core, this idea of, you know, children um, 
it's an approach to, to teaching comprehension where the pupils have to extract meaning from a text and what they want to do is really close read that text and it's a repeated reading so they'll read it over and over again and each time they read it so on their first reading they will just you know get the gist of what's happening in the story on the second reading we might look at you know vocabulary or word choice and things like that and then we'll go back to that text again and on the third reading we'll look at inferencing and you know being critical about what the author the perspective of the author look at narration and all of that so I wanted to apply that to a piece, a visual image, uh, visual image. And very often it's like what you don't know, you don't know. So it's only when you show people and I was very much talking to adults on this. I, I showed them a, an image and they had to look at it the first time and, you know, take, get the gist of it. And then I taught them some of the grammar and suddenly they could read it at a whole deeper level. They could see things going on in the picture that you know, they had no idea what was going on at that first glance. So I've just, it's a, it's an area that I, I, I'm still quite passionate about is children being able to read and question and be critical of, of the text, of the visual text that they see both in picture books, but also in the world around them, particularly in advertising and, you know, on the internet and things like that as well. So that's where uh, that all came from. And are there any particular picture books that immediately come to mind for you when you think about that kind of visual literacy that actually the pictures really do pay off knowing mm. the grammar of the pictures yeah uh, I would use a lot of Anthony Brown's work anything by Anthony Brown is just phenomenal in terms of you could look at those images in his books and literally every time you you look at them you see something new that you didn't see before uh, so he uses a lot of those techniques. I also love uh, John Classen. His work is fantastic in teaching children. Um, I want my hat back. And what happens in the images there are completely at odds. And it was a very simple, very, very simple text. But what's happening in the picture completely undermines what's happening in the printed text. So that's a lovely one to introduce children to this idea that, oh, you know, very often with picture books, they're seen as sometimes the stabilizers of the reading world that, you know, we teach them in the infant classes and then we whisk them away because now they can read and they can read proper books. Uh, in actual fact, there are some very, very complex uh, books that you wouldn't introduce to infants at all and would be much more appropriate at the senior end of the school. Uh, so I, I feel quite strongly about this idea that picture books are for everybody. And, and once you find the right picture book, uh, like the work of Sean Tan, for example, and his wordless picture book, The Arrival, is just a phenomenal piece of work, uh, completely uh, wordless. But again, you know, for an older class, particularly if you've immigrant children within your class, what it tries to do is show everybody and to be able to empathize and show people what it's like to be, a, you know, someone who's arrived in a new country that they, you know, parts of it are recognizable, but parts of it aren't. And so there, there's just, I think, a wealth of, of opportunity in picture books across the, the spectrum from infants all the way up to, to, to sixth class as well. Uh, and some really, um, you know, in terms of challenging stereotypes, there's some amazing books out there for that as well. So really, this, uh, not a day goes by probably in lectures where I don't draw the students' attention to, you know, this one, this picture book would be really good for vocabulary. This one would be great for, you know, teaching visual literacy. So, yeah, the, the, it's a big part of, I suppose, my work in lectures as well. And building on that uh, answer, Jen, I wonder, could you say a little bit about, you know, some examples of how 
quality children's literature might be used in say the junior classes and the middle classes and the senior classes just to kind of to whet the appetite I suppose of of teachers who, who are listening yeah I mean oh my god I use them for for absolutely everything and anything you know they're wonderful for critical thinking and for developing children's oral language particular in the junior end of the school and um, you know to get children talking and trying to put themselves in the shoes of a character within the story and and they're also wonderful for topic-based uh, discussions where the children have the safety to talk about maybe something to do with bullying, for example, has happened within the story. And we can talk about it quite freely as a character within the book, even though this might be going on to the cl- in the classroom, but it's giving the children that, you know, they can step into another world and talk about these issues as the characters rather than as, you know, Joe sitting in the classroom. Uh, in terms of developing empathy, particularly at the, the junior end of the school, they're, they're wonderful for getting children to, to think about how other people feel or if you were the character, how how would you have, what would you have done and, and all those kinds of conversations. Um, wonderful then up the school for vocabulary development, you know, all about looking at particular words that we need to really develop children's vocabulary much more. And. Um, Springboards for writing, you know, we might read a picture book for the simple reason that that's going to give us something to write about or we're going to extend that story uh, for a piece of writing. Uh, And then obviously visual literacy. And there's some wonderful books there for for challenging all sorts of stereotypes. They're they're wonderful for that. Uh, Like, for instance, I think one I always talk about is the poor grannies always get a very bad uh, rep in literature, you know, with George's Marvelous Medicine and things. Grannies never seem to come out very well. So looking at that and asking children, well, does your granny look like that? And chances are their grannies are probably only in their 40s and 50s. So it doesn't look anything. So and, you know, the paper bag princess books like that are all wonderful for challenging stereotypes uh, and having those really rich deep conversations uh with children and that kind of those critical conversations around the world uh the world around them they're they're wonderful for for all of those particular reasons and more (laughs) Uh, that's great jan and if there are parents listening to this what can they do at home to help their child read better Okay, this is a this is a big one, especially in light of of recent days and and the the lockdown and back in March and April, I was in that same boat uh, trying to homeschool. And what was interesting is uh, my my daughter's ten now, so it was not as easy a task as it was when she was infants and really interested in reading. And you know, they talk about that fourth grade slump in the states where reading suddenly isn't really very cool anymore, but. Myself and my, my wonderful colleague, uh, Clara Fiorentini, during uh, the, the lockdown back in March and April, we were involved in a project called Literacy on the Loose, um, which was done in collaboration with TCD. And uh, we developed a little video called Literacy in the Kitchen. And the whole idea behind it was to show that literacy can be developed, you know, in everyday activities and interactions around the house. And... Um, you know, reading recipes together, let's go make some scones, let's read the recipe, let's, oh, look, we're going to need a few things in the shop, let's write our shopping list. You know, it doesn't have to be now, let's sit down here, open your book, you know, those literacy opportunities all around us. And I suppose the big two messages I probably have for parents uh, would be to try and make reading enjoyable, because if it isn't, you know, you're going to have children with 
very negative connotations to reading and that's really not what we're, we're looking for. I know um, my daughter is, was obsessed there with David Williams. Um, now, these are not the, the most riveting books in the, in the world, but I didn't care. She loved reading them and she was reading and hopefully she'll progress to some of the other books I have in store for her. But at the moment, that's what she's happy doing and that was what she enjoyed. And that's really what's most important at the moment. And then letting your children see you reading. I think this is something many children don't see anymore or what they'll see is you reading from a device or reading from a phone or an iPad. But like, ask yourself, how often does your child see you reading a book? Uh, and yet we're telling them it's really important that they read books, but very often maybe. So maybe just, you know, taking time out to sit down and, oh, I'm going to read my book. Do you want to read yours? You know, and let them see sometimes you engaged in that kind of activity as well. Jen, if you could post a billboard outside every school in the country to help produce <laughs> better readers and you could direct the sign either at the teachers or the students, what would the sign say? Okay. This is an interesting one. <laughs> uh, you could have a list here, but if, if there was only one, I suppose I was reading uh, or watching a, a webinar the other day. And I mean, we've been so lucky. Again, one of the positive aspects, if, if there could be any to, to COVID, is just the wealth of information that's now at our fingertips with webinars. But I was watching one by um, Jan Hasbrook, which she does a lot of work in uh, terms of dyslexia and things in that particular area. But she had a really nice slogan, and I actually thought that would be a really nice billboard to have. And it's, it's directed at teachers, and it's this idea that when you know better, you do better. And it, it, it's this idea of, you know, constantly learning on the job uh, as a teacher and maybe not sticking to some of those traditional practices that, you know, we've been doing for years. So the, the likes of, dare I mention, the round robins and the Friday spelling tests, you know, and you know, looking at what's out there at the moment and what is research telling us and, and how can you bring that into the classroom? Um, but what I have to say, one thing that um, just I've been staggered by uh, over the last couple of months is the, the I suppose, the commitment of teachers to upskilling has been incredible. Um, as I said, all these webinars now are available and out there and we have access to people in our homes where we don't have to get up and go to an education centre that's, you know, maybe hundreds or, or tens of, of, of kilometres away from us that we have to trek over to. And I've seen webinars and been involved in webinars where there have been three and 400 teachers. So it's not that teachers don't want to upskill themselves. Sometimes the opportunities aren't there. But what this uh, pandemic has definitely shown is just the willingness and the commitment by teachers to want to upskill and they want this information. So I suppose in, in terms of the, the billboard, that would be mine. Uh, when you know better, you do better. So. That's great, Jen. We're coming near the end of the podcast now. So I just have a few quick fire questions that I wanted to put at you. They're kind of more general ones that I put to every guest and uh, just take three or four of them. The first one is, what is school for or what are schools for in your view? It, it depends who you are and who you're asking. Um, I know you're asking me, but I suppose in terms of like for a child, a school is for socializing and for being with their friends. And, and you know, most children will say, what's your favorite part of the day? It's break time. Uh, for a teacher, it's to teach. For a parent, I want my child to learn. For the government, it's sort of what you'll contribute to society. So I think it's 
school for me is probably a combination of all of those aspects and it's a place where children or young adults come together to socialize but also to learn to become I suppose responsible citizens and compassionate contributors to society would be kind of how I sort of sum it up I suppose from all of those different stakeholders and, and perspectives. Is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? Now this was interesting because there wasn't really when I thought back uh there really hasn't been one, you know, I have a terrible memory anyway, which is really bad. And I don't remember half of my time in, in primary school, let alone secondary. Uh, so, no, I don't remember one particular teacher, but I do remember a particular principal in, in one of my schools who uh, definitely not, not took an interest, but was always quite sort of in the background and pushing me. And she was very interested in sort of singing and all sorts of things. So I was always in the choir and things like that. And what actually went on to happen was when I uh, was uh, an NQT and was doing my dip year, that same principal uh, joined the inspectorate and that same principal actually uh, in, was my inspector for my dip year. So it just seems that no, a number of sort of junctures in my life, this sort of person has been there and very much, you know, been very um, affirmative and, you know, always this is going really well, but, you know, also pointing out the things that don't go so well and things you need to work on. So it's probably that principle more so than a particular class teacher that that comes to mind and, and sticks out as someone who's who's had an impact on me, even beyond my school years. Who or what inspires you? Um, oh, well, at the moment, uh, the thing that's really come to light that has that does inspire me is travel. Uh, and the lack of being able to travel is, is you know, is, is very difficult. Uh, I think travel, it has always inspired me back to my days in Aer Lingus. You know, I spent days and days each week traveling. And I think you learn just so much, not only about the culture you're maybe visiting, but about yourself when you're traveling. And how many times have any of us come home from a trip and, you know, tried out a recipe that we tasted when we were abroad or you know you wanted to learn maybe some of the language maybe when you came back and I always make a point of buying a picture book when I'm abroad in that particular language and even better if I can get the same picture book that I have at home in that language so I think for me what what does inspire me is, is travel and what you learn about yourself and the world around you when you're traveling is is something that I'm very much uh, very uh, very sad about at the moment <laughs> Not being yeah, able to I, I think, do, but we'll get back there. Yeah, a lot of us are feeling very, uh, very land tied at the moment, I think. Finally, yeah. finally, Jen, have you a favourite writer, book or blog about education? So one book that uh, has really stayed with me over the last few years is a book by Mark Seidenberg called Language at the Speed of Light. He's a cognitive psychologist who has looked at brain imaging, who's looked at computational models of reading and has years ago told us what we need to know about reading but what's happening and the frustration is that what he his findings are showing aren't being applied in the classroom and I suppose with even my own PhD my approach was educational design research because what I wanted to do was I wanted to make sure the research happened in the class and with reading research up until I suppose the last 10 years or so, reading research was often conducted in sort of very sterile, controlled laboratory settings. And I think for a lot of people in education, there was a very big disconnect between what was happening there and, well, we couldn't possibly do that in the classroom. I mean, so 
he talks about this in his book and this divide between um, research and practice and you know what research is showing us and oh my god why is it not being done in the classroom so uh, I think though a lot of his thinkings are are now starting to to have an effect out there and this whole area of the science of reading has as very much supported by by him and that particular book is is really quite enlightening um, in terms of how we learn to read and why some people don't learn to read. Also, anything by Louisa Motes is uh, fascinating, this whole area of, you know, what do we need to know as teachers to teach reading and particularly early reading? So what's her name again? By, uh, Louisa Motes, her, her book, um, Speech to Print, is really uh, should be something that every teacher reads. Uh, everything you need to know in terms of the, the language system and what we need to know to ensure that we're teaching the children the right things. And like you said earlier, Sean, how to know those children who are, are stumbling or, or struggling uh, and why they might be doing so. So her book, Speech to Print, is really, um, really, really, uh, I, I would say a must read for, for any teacher out there, particularly anyone who's interested in, in literacy. And I suppose I couldn't uh, leave today without talking about, again, my colleague Clara Fiorentini and her Little Miss Teacher blog always lots and lots up there for teachers, lots of really good activities. And of course, our own uh, channel, our literacy channel, which we um, uh, are developing uh, month by month, we're hopefully getting the content up there. So um, all of those I'd, I'd really recommend for teachers. Uh, and Mark Seidenberg's, I should say, it's a really accessible read. You know, it's, it's really, really easy to get through very interesting and um, it's not a big academic tome or anything like that so and I, I'll certainly put links to all of those resources you mentioned in the show notes anyway Jen so great thanks a million for talking to me your enthusiasm and your passion for the area just shine through <laughs> so thank you so much no problem Sean it was a pleasure thanks a million for having me and that was my colleague Dr Jennifer O'Sullivan from the Marino Institute of Education you can listen back to this podcast and over 400 previous episodes by going to seandelaney.com and clicking on podcasts you can write to me with feedback comments or suggestions by email to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com my twitter handle is at insideed My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, which was published by Routledge, will be available later this month as an audiobook narrated by me. Until the next time, this is Sean Delaney signing off. Thank you for your company. (laughs) 